0: This episode is sponsored by Unique One Network, Mimo, and QuantStamp.
1: You cannot have maturity transformation, i.e., interest rate risk and credit risk, in a stablecoin portfolio be subject to a run. And let me give you an example of this that is unique to stablecoins, has nothing to do with traditional banking. We see periodic accidental chain splits. We've seen multiple in both Bitcoin and Ethereum. And hey, Ethereum's got a big hard fork coming up later this summer. Let's play out the scenario where some of the miners say, I don't want to convert to proof of stake. I want to stay with proof of work. And you get another split in Ethereum. Well, holy cow, we've got tens of billions of dollars of ERC-20 tokens that have been issued as stable coins. Now what happens to all those once your chain split? You're going to have to do a redemption and reissuance. So there you go. You just have an example, a very real world, very foreseeable, about once a year, you see accidental chain forks happen, whether they get sustained or not is the question. But we had one that was sustained for several hours in Ethereum just in November. And a lot of people were nervous at that point. Does that mean the stable coins are going to have to be redeemed? Heck, we only had, I think, 11 billion of stable coins outstanding at that time, if I remember right. Now it's 101 billion. So what's going to happen in August if we have a split of the Ethereum chain, and the stablecoins have to be redeemed.
2: One of the basic principles that regulators should keep in mind here is it's not just about playing whack-a-mole. It's not just about prohibiting stablecoin issuers from doing this or that, let alone prohibiting them outright. It's about exploring the features of different stablecoins, discovering those that have actually very desirable features and are very safe, and encouraging them. So, you know, we can have carrots and sticks in this game.
3: Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high profile interviews and thought provoking analysis, join Coindesk's Michael Casey and Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum as they explore the connections between finance, human culture and our increasingly digital lives. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. Just a reminder, Coindesk is a new source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey.
4: Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. All of a sudden, regulators seem obsessed with stablecoins, those special blockchain-based tokens that are designed to hold a stable one-to-one value relative to another instrument, such as the US dollar. In the U.S. in particular, there has been a flurry of activity. This past month, we've had Federal Reserve officials offering competing views on stablecoins. Eric Rosengren, the president of the Boston Fed, warned that stablecoins could stoke systemic risks in the financial system if not properly regulated. On the other hand, Randall Quiles, the Fed's vice governor, argued that the U.S. should encourage stablecoin innovation, even prioritizing it over creating a central bank digital currency all as part of a way to ease access to dollars around the world and spread U.S. influence, he argued. Then, earlier this week, Treasury Secretary Yellen convened the President's Working Group on Financial Markets in a high-powered meeting to discuss stablecoin regulation that included top-ranking officials from the Treasury, the Fed, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the Commodities Futures Trading Commission, the Officer of the Comptroller of the Currency, and the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. We don't know much officially about what was discussed, but we do know that the attendees were presented with a paper by Yale economist Gary Gorton and Fed attorney Jeffrey Zhang arguing for a rather draconian system of bank regulations and mandatory FDIC insurance. And on Wednesday, SEC chairman Gary Gensler suggested that some stablecoins might be securities, which would indicate that they would be regulated by his agency, perhaps in a similar manner to money market funds. Meanwhile, in a separate but integrally related matter, a new European anti-money laundering authority is poised to toughen its treatment of cryptocurrencies. Mehrud McGuinness, EU Commissioner for Financial Services, Financial Stability and Capital Markets, tweeted Wednesday that the agency will ban anonymous crypto wallets and make sure that crypto asset transfers are traceable. Presumably, stablecoins will fall within that purview. Why this frenetic activity? Well, one reason is the explosive growth of stablecoins such as Tether and USDC whose outstanding value has this year at least tripled to surpass the $100 billion mark. That's more than three times the value held in PayPal accounts. All of a sudden, regulators are starting to worry. Do stablecoins pose systemic risk if there is a run on them, i.e. if investors suddenly feel that those that use a reserve backing system don't hold enough liquid dollar assets and reserves? Does the free flow of stablecoin transactions around the world pose a challenge to international anti-money laundering provisions if those tokens are going to anonymous wallets and are never being redeemed for actual dollars? And how to reconcile those potentially competing regulatory interests? And will a regulatory backlash kill off the potential for monetary innovation and financial inclusion that this promising technology could offer? That's what we'll talk about today with two guests who are steeped in this conversation. The first is Caitlin Long, founder and CEO of Avanti, a Wyoming-based digital assets bank, which will issue its own digital dollar, the it. The second is George Selgin, director of the Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives at the Cato Institute, whose work as a monetary historian has, among other things, addressed the United States free banking era in the 19th century, which has interesting parallels to the stablecoin moment. But first, let's welcome my host, Sheila Warren. Hi, Sheila.
0: Hey, Michael. What a week, huh?
4: <laughs> yeah. Suddenly, this topic is just everywhere. And you almost get the sense that they're panicking a little bit.
0: Well, I think there was this sense that, you know, let's be honest, maybe if we kind of ignore this, it will all go away or prove to be a little bit fringy. And now suddenly you're seeing that there's this mainstreaming of it, both in kinds of use and adoption, but just the volumes uh, of this activity are, are impossible to ignore. So I think those who've been kind of sounding the horn and by these different agencies are now probably feeling very validated. And others who maybe haven't been paying as much attention are feeling like they have to play a lot of catch up.
4: I mean, one mark of the interest in this was the fact that Circle, you know, is going public on this through through a SPAC transaction.
2: Yeah. yeah.
4: I mean, Circle, of course, being along with Coinbase, the one of the two issuers of the increasingly popular USDC stablecoin.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. And it's interesting to kind of think about the activity earlier in the year around Tether and the questions around whether it was really holding in reserve, what it was maybe claiming to hold, et cetera, how we've shifted away from that. That's certainly part of the conversation, but there's a lot of other things regulators are looking at now. In addition to that, just question around whether there was enough, in the event of a run, there was enough there to kind of uh, hold the line. (laughs) So quite some developments. Right.
4: And it brings in, of course, all the conversations we've had about Tether, whether Tether is appropriately backed then the fact that stablecoins come in multiple different colors, right? Not all of them are actually reserve-based systems. We have these algorithmic stablecoins. There's a lot of stuff to unpack here. So really looking forward to chatting to George and Caitlin about this. Let's bring them in. Welcome, George. Welcome, Caitlin.
2: It's nice to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Good to see you again.
4: All right. It's great to have you guys. First time I've had a chance to actually chat face-to-face with George, but we've had various exchanges over Twitter and other things. And Caitlin, you and I have Shared the stage, done all sorts of things over the years. It's been a fun ride. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Listen, I thought I'd get from both of you, maybe a crystal ball exercise, specifically with regards to regulation, right? This PWG meeting was a big deal. You heard the names of all the folks who were present at it. And clearly there's a sense that something is about to happen. What do you both of you think is, you know, in a nutshell, likely to be the kind of framework that will emerge out of this? Caitlin, why don't you take that if you can to start with?
1: Sure. Thank you. Well, I would just point to Jay Powell's own words. He said that he thinks that stablecoins should be regulated as bank deposits or as money market funds. And to your point, Michael, there are different types of stablecoins. And frankly, I think it could end up being that both of those camps be available to stablecoin issuers as a choice. I don't think that those two camps fit the decentralized. Algorithmic stablecoins very well. But Gary Gensler just this morning I saw said that even the decentralized versions, so presumably the algorithmic stablecoins is what he's referring to, if they touch securities, are going to need to be registered as a security. So that's the furthest I've seen of any of the DC officials make any pronouncements regarding the algorithmic stablecoins. I think the bigger issue that they're concerned about though. Is the reserve based stable coins. That's what Rosengren's comments and even Powell and Brainerd's comments previously have been aimed at. It's the reserve based stable coins. And if you go back in time, actually not, none of this is really new. The central bankers never really have been concerned about the decentralized cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin or ether. They started to really get interested in this sector when Facebook announced DM or back then, Libra. And the reason is that that actually really does pose monetary policy challenges to the Fed. It ties up high-quality liquid assets like T-bills that other markets rely upon and puts them into silos of collateral, so-called roach motels, right? The collateral goes in and it never comes back out. The market needs that collateral to function smoothly and so it was Libra that got them started on stablecoins two summers ago. And now here we are, to your point, it's three times the size of PayPal now. And there have been a decades long debate in policymaking circles over whether fintech should be allowed to grow as big as PayPal. Mm-hmm. Well, now it's pretty obvious that the stablecoin market has blown past PayPal. And I think that actually is going to force an answer to that. Decades-long debate over whether fintech companies should be given bank charters and brought inside the banking system.
4: Yeah, and I I think one of the reasons why that has blown past is because they are fundamentally useful, which we can, you know, talk about a little bit later about you know the innovation and the opportunities that lie with that, and balancing that against the risks. But George, your take? Uh, Do you agree with Caitlin? You know, where do you see this going?
2: Well, I I don't have a sense of just how fast they're going to move, but I do agree with Caitlin about the the way they are proceeding. And uh, I think it's not a very healthy way. There's a tendency, the regulators are trying to take shortcuts here. They're trying to regulate by analogy. So they're trying to fit stable coins of different types into the existing boxes of financial intermediaries so that they can try to regulate them the same way they regulate intermediaries like money market funds and banks. In some cases, in many cases, that's trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. And as Caitlin suggested, you have are quite a variety of very different types of stable coins, That some of which may somewhat resemble banks or money market funds, and some of which don't resemble either, like the algorithmic ones. And uh, the real crucial question, I think, for many of the regulators from a macroeconomic point of view is the question of runs. How vulnerable are these different stable coins to runs? And beyond that, though the regulators don't seem to be asking this question enough, exactly what are the interconnections between these stable coins and other financial institutions that could cause runs on them if they can occur to have spillover effects? Exactly what are the fears? What's the basis for fearing that a run on Tether, for example, is going to have Ripple on effects that cause other financial institutions to to have trouble. Uh, Of course, even among the reserve cryptocurrencies, you have a great set of different possibilities or different arrangements out there. You have some that are actually trying to hold bank deposits, and you have some that are trying to get master accounts and hold Federal Reserve deposits, which is 100% reserves. I hope I won't appear to just be being nice to Caitlin if I point out that, for example, that sort of arrangement doesn't pose any systematic risk because it can always cash 100% of its obligations without any trouble at all. Now, for those that hold treasuries, yes, there is an issue because uh, treasuries are useful collateral, and and there have been problems with scarce collateral. But I must say, there's something ironic about the Federal Reserve worrying that there are going to be these other financial institutions, stablecoin issuers, locking up a lot of treasury securities. Well, good heavens! We, I know
4: an institution that's been locking up a lot of treasuries. Yeah, You're absolutely right. Talk about <laughs> the,
2: popcorn, the kettle black, right? <laughs> uh, of course, uh, one response to that is that if we need more treasury collateral? Well, yippee, because uh, the government needs to borrow a lot more anyway, by the looks of things. Uh, And it seems to be perfectly eager to do so. So, But what I think all of this boils down to is that this rush to regulate, which is what it looks like, is causing regulators and experts alike to try and take shortcuts. And uh, I don't think that regulation by shortcut is a good idea, partly because it's going to try to regulate very different institutions uh, in the same way, and that's going to prove uh, problematic. But also because it's likely to result in an overly strict regime that stifles desirable financial uh, innovation. So I think they should take a deep breath. And start thinking about different stablecoin issuers and exactly what risks they pose. Forget about comparisons with banks, and especially, especially banks that haven't existed for 180 years. And actually look at these new arrangements uh, with a cold eye and without the prejudice that comes from a reading of history, especially, I must say, a very bad reading of history in, in the mm. case of many of the arguments being made.
3: There's so many blockchains and NFT marketplaces these days, and none of them work together. Introducing Unique One Network, the easy way to build multi-blockchain DeFi-enabled NFT marketplaces, where instead of picking your favorite blockchain, you let your users and creators pick for themselves. Powered by Polkadot, Unique One Network lets you service NFT creators and collectors across art, photography, philanthropy, gaming, finance, and more. So do yourself a favor and head over to UniqueOne.network now to learn more. That's uniqueone.network to learn more. Looking to exit the volatility of crypto, but don't wanna deal with the inflation of the dollar? Minting PAR using MIMO DeFi is exactly what you're looking for to get ahead of that. PAR is the number one Europeg token on the market, minted at an incredibly low 2% interest rate and backed by collaterals like Ether, Bitcoin, and USDC. Stabilize your portfolio, Open a vault and access the power of blockchain through MIMO protocol today at MIMO.capital. That's MIMO, M-I-M-O, dot capital. After climbing 1,400% in total value locked last year, DeFi continues to quickly innovate over traditional finance and is on track to become the financial infrastructure of tomorrow. This new infrastructure has unique security needs and Quantstamp has already secured over $100 billion worth of digital assets for the best projects in the space. Visit quantstamp.com blog to learn why DeFi projects like Maker, Compound and Barnbridge trust Quantstamp to fulfill their security needs. That's quantstamp.com blog to learn more. So, George,
0: I want to pull on so many things that you just said, but I'll start just for our listeners defining a bank run. Not everyone will be familiar with that idea and a bank run. If you've seen It's a Wonderful Life, uh, there's a scene there, right, where Demi Sturt's character goes in and everyone's like running into the bank and they're all worried about their money and they all start pulling their money out. And so a bank run basically is when a large number of customers of any financial institution uh, withdraw their deposits simultaneously. Uh, they're concerned about the bank solvency. And ironically, that leads to the banks ultimately defaulting in some cases. These occurred throughout history. 2008 is the most recent kind of run that we had here, of course, the Great Depression. And interestingly enough, uh, the FDIC, which is the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation was actually established in 1933 in response to a bank run. So this is something that I do think it seems is kind of top of mind for these regulators, and I want to talk a little bit, George, and ask you about the Gorton Jang paper that was presented. Uh, it talked about mandatory FDIC insurance, but it was all predicated on this concept of the history that you noted that you take issue with. So I'd love to kind of get your feedback on that paper and your thoughts.
2: Sure. Well, there's a lot there. I had about 20 Twitter threads, each of which was quite long, just addressing the historical parts of that paper. There's so much that can be said. Let me start by pointing out that as far as banks are concerned, there's a great deal of exaggeration both about how vulnerable banks themselves are to runs in general and about how many spillovers those runs have. By the way, the institution that was run upon in uh, It's a Wonderful Life wasn't a bank, it was a building and loan society, right. and the FDIC wouldn't have made any difference.
0: <laughs> That's <a> good point. <laughs>
2: Bank runs have been more common in U.S. history than elsewhere, but it's surprising how few runs have existed in other countries. You don't see crises like the kind that uh, we had either during the Depression or before in most other countries. Now, if you have a a, a narrow view of economic history, you don't see that and you reach a lot of wrong conclusions. Surprisingly, uh, most banking systems in advanced countries have been very robust and with runs occasionally happening, usually on banks that very much deserved to be run upon. And the runs served the very desirable purpose of shutting those bad banks down and doing it in a hurry. And there are good economists who've defended bank runs. I don't wanna go there right now, because reading the room, I don't think anybody wants to hear about how runs are a good thing. Okay, fine. But the point is that already, even with respect to banks, some of these arguments that are being made are not very accurate. And the spillover effects argument is important too. It's been quite rare, even in the US case, for runs on individual banks to lead to general panic. The one time when most people think that happened was February 1933. But actually what happened then wasn't that everybody lost confidence in those banks that hadn't already failed, but that uh, there were fears that uh, the dollar would be devalued. If you think the dollar is gonna be devalued, you get your money out of your bank, you get your Federal Reserve notes, and then you stage your run on the Fed for the gold. That's exactly what happened in February 33. So that episode's also been misunderstood. To come back to uh, the present, though, and to stable coins, which is what we really ought to be talking about, and we don't really need to talk about history to do this correctly. And if we have bad history, well that not only won't help it will make things worse. Some stable coin issuers aren't at all vulnerable to runs. That's what Caitlin was saying about the algorithmic ones. What those are, are like little central banks that have decided that they're going to manage pegged exchange rate type arrangements where you can't go to those issuers and say, hey, I want some real dollars. That's not part of how they run, operate. It's just, they're going to try to manage, deliberately manage, the quantity of their stable coins so as to maintain a fixed exchange rate against the dollar, it won't be a perfect fixed exchange rate. it'll fluctuate just like peg central bank arrangements, that is central banks that peg their currencies to some other country's currencies. but they can't be run upon they're not offering they're not offering they're not operating like banks in the sense that they aren't taking in deposits and giving you IOUs that you get to exchange one for one anytime you want to so there's no runs in that case. Forget about it. Let's move on now. Well, sorry, we can talk about how to regulate those algorithmic stablecoin issuers, but let's not try to regulate them like banks. Maybe we need to regulate them like central banks, but not like ordinary banks. Then you have the different kinds of reserve-based stablecoin issuers, and some of them are less vulnerable to runs than others. The statement was made earlier that some of these uh, stablecoin issuers have more of a resemblance to money market funds than to banks. What they issue is more like little shares or equity than like debt. In that case, a floating asset value can make them run-proof. We know this. The problem with the mutual funds that we've had in the past is that uh, they were allowed to have fixed asset values and to mimic banks when they shouldn't have been. So here's an example where instead of saying, oh, stablecoin issuers are banks, we should say they're not banks, and let's make sure they don't try to act like banks for that category, and so on. For every category of stablecoin issuers, there is a sensible way to think about regulation. But lumping them all together and treating them as analogous to existing institutions today or in the distant past is not the right way to get it right.
0: Thanks, George. You know, Caitlin, I'd love to to bring you in now. Tell us about Avanti, Avit. you know, and how the approach that you're taking is regulatorily different uh, than some of the other things that exist out there. I think a lot about, you know, premature regulation, as I call it, this idea that before we really have even a landscape defined around these things, regulation could cut off innovation. And so I'd love to get your responses to that in the context of what you all are doing in Wyoming.
1: Sure. Well, first of all, we are, unlike everyone else, going straight to the Fed for permission. The Fed is the proverbial sword of Damocles hanging over all of this because the Fed has never opined on any of it. And even though the president's working group meeting was this week, actually, I think uh, the DC folks would say that FSOC, the Financial Stability Oversight Committee, actually, it, it may be more important than the president's working group because it already has statutory authority to take regulatory action. And it also is in the position of meeting. And there have been some leaks out of its meetings that say that that FSOC wants the Fed to be the regulator of stable coins. That makes perfect sense. And Avanti's at the altar at the Fed. We have been waiting. They have slowed us down. There's a big powwow happening in Washington, D.C. to try to get all the policy decisions made. And we've gone through the full bank charter in order to get that permission and applied for what's called a master account so we can clear directly at the Fed. That does not exist in the industry right now. The industry has very high concentration of its U.S. dollar services in a very small number of banks, specifically two banks and a couple of others coming in. But the vast majority of the volume, including for stablecoin issuers, ultimately clears through those two banks. As a result of that, we've got a bank concentration issue. And we also have, as a result of that, layers of intermediaries, therefore layers of cost and layers of delay that are involved in the stablecoin market as it works today. Interestingly, also, the whole industry, because of the difficulty of getting US dollar banking services, which is, again, what Avanti's working on for the industry, we consider ourselves sort of industry utility. The other piece of that is that most of the players, including some of the stablecoin issuers in this market... Are getting their U.S. dollar services from other fintechs. And so what's interesting, and I've seen a number of academics make note of Vanti's comment letter to the Federal Reserve that laid out how this works, is that many of the players in the industry are not even licensed as money transmitters. And they just sort of rent the charter of a money transmitter or a state trust company, which then turns around and banks with a bank, which then turns around and banks with the Fed. So what Avanti is proposing to do is to cut out those layers and bank directly with the Fed. And again, it doesn't exist right now. It would take away the risk of the Fed cutting all this off because we're actually asking for explicit permission to do so. Now, if I step back and look at the regulatory options, here's the punchline. And I can't underscore this enough. The Fed already has the tool that it needs to Allow stablecoins to become bank deposits. And it's exactly the charter that Avanti is, and Kraken Bank is, and WT Financial is, and multiple of the stablecoin issuers are hanging around the hoop to see if the Fed's going to open it. Because if the Fed does open up this channel and allow stablecoin issuers to become banks, then I think the market naturally just goes in that direction for the two reasons I've alluded to earlier it takes out the layers of fees and intermediaries. And it also takes out that debanking risk that everyone in the industry is subject to because of the bank concentration risk we face in the industry, as well as the issue that the FDIC historically has been the biggest blocker for banking services in this industry. Those are FDIC-insured banks. So the FDIC decides to ever pull the plug. It's a big problem for the industry. So we just went straight to the Fed. We're not FDIC-insured. And we're at the altar with the Fed, and the Fed has had the solution in its inbox since last fall. The question is how fast it will act.
4: Well, presumably, the issue of a bank run really isn't there because, you know, you're always endeavoring to have a one-to-one value anyway. And, you know, if it's not a full reserve, it's at least much better than a fractional reserve structure. So FDIC insurance seems kind of pretty pointless. And it is full
1: reserve, by the way. Yeah.
0: Such a focus with the mandatory FDIC insurance proposal and all of that. It's really interesting because it is a bit of a red herring. The bank run concept, I think, George, to your point and Caitlin's point, is a bit of a red herring if you really understand what's happening here.
1: Giving fractional reserve banks the ability to issue stable coins is a terrible idea. I cannot underscore that any more than I just did. It is a terrible idea. And the reason is you cannot have maturity transformation, i.e., interest rate risk and credit risk. In a stablecoin portfolio that really could, I disagree with George, it really could be subject to a run. And let me give you a, an example of this that is unique to stablecoins, has nothing to do with traditional banking. We see periodic accidental chain splits. We've seen multiple in both Bitcoin and Ethereum. And hey, Ethereum's got a big hard fork coming up, uh, the London hard fork coming up later this summer. Let's play out the scenario where some of the miners say, I don't want to convert to proof of stake. I want to stay with proof of work. And you get another split in Ethereum. Well, holy cow, we've got tens of billions of dollars of ERC20 tokens that have been issued as stable coins. Now what happens to all those once your chain split? You're going to have to do a redemption and reissuance. So there you go, you just have an example, a very real world, very foreseeable, about once a year you see accidental chain forks happen, whether they get sustained or not is the question. But we had one that was sustained for several hours in Ethereum just in November. And a lot of people were nervous at that point. Does that mean the stable coins are gonna have to be redeemed? Heck, we only had I think 11 billion of stable coins outstanding at that time, if I remember right, now it's 101 billion. So what's gonna happen in August? if we have a split of the Ethereum chain and the stable coins have to be redeemed.
2: If I may, Caitlin, that is also an algorithmic case. Right? Nope. No.
1: I'm talking about the reserve-based stable uh, coins right. too. Okay. You betcha, well, right? And now right. we've got you know, corporate bonds and commercial no. paper that have to be redeemed. Okay. That's what Rosengren is talking okay. about.
2: Right, You bet. But, but to get back to your earlier point and to what I said, uh, let's be clear. 100% reserve stablecoin, reserve type stablecoin issuer isn't vulnerable to runs. That would be you, for example.
1: Yes, because we're, we're literally just 100% backed by cash. Again, we're, not, we're approved to issue it, but we're not approved by the Fed yet, and we're waiting yeah. for Fed approval, so it's not issued yet.
2: And I, I want to toot my horn by noting that I'm probably the only non-industry expert who wrote a long comment letter about this issue to the Fed saying they absolutely should be providing master accounts to outfits like Caitlin's and other fintechs uh, based on the 100% reserve requirement at least. But yes, other reserve type stablecoins can be vulnerable to runs. I wasn't denying uh, that some could be vulnerable to runs. Of course, we've had runs. But there are also the algorithmic ones. They deserve to be recognized and understood as operating on principles such that they too may turn out not to require heavy-handed regulation. So there are all these different categories and the point is we should keep them separate, we should understand that these are different beasts and they call for different regulatory responses. But I'm absolutely for uh, having better opportunities for more stable coin issuers to do what Caitlin's firm is going to do that should be a part of the ecosystem that is encouraged. I wrote in uh, another of my long Twitter threads that one of the basic principles that regulators should keep in mind here is it's not just about playing whack-a-mole, it's not just about prohibiting stablecoin issuers from doing this or that, let alone prohibiting them outright. It's about exploring the features of different stable coins discovering those that have actually very desirable features and are very safe and encouraging them. So, you know, we can have carrots and sticks in this regulation mm. game.
4: Yeah, I thought that uh, Randall Quarles's speech was really interesting for the way that he seemed to embrace the idea that innovation was going to be to the U.S.'s advantage and specifically this idea that, you know, you loosen it up and you make it, you know, you, you build all these different stable coins, then in fact, it really helps U.S. global power because the dollar is more accessible. Which brings me to a question I want to bring to both of you, to you, George, first. And, and that is, look, if we're going to end up with the model that Avanti's getting, where the Fed is essentially you know, endorsing this and providing these vehicles, and you know, you're a bank with all those regulations, or algorithmic stable coins end up in Gary Gensler's bucket and he's regulating those security, then KYC is now at the center of everything, right? Which seems to me then, this is something that we talk about all the time on Money Reimagined, that you know now one of the advantages of stable coins, which is this sort of global freedom that you have to move this cash-like digital item around the world, the way it's being used in Argentina, to Krala's point, could actually be beneficial to the United States, suddenly is undermined, right? Because the advantage of it, it seems to some extent, is the ease with which you can access it without all of those identity requirements that you would have elsewhere. George, I'd like you to weigh in because you made a really interesting point, one of your Twitter threads, and that is that, one of the things that might actually make stablecoins even less prone to a run or even just redemption itself is because people who are using them for anonymity purposes are just not going to want to go and redeem because then they're suddenly bringing themselves forward. And so this is kind of interesting trade-off between stability and actual KYC. Do we end up inevitably in a world where this still faces all the same problems? And I wrote a paper for your institute as part of that conference last year. Just pointing out how much KYC has been a huge imposition on financial inclusion and all these other challenges. Are we just rebuilding all of that now around stablecoins?
2: I don't think we necessarily are. It is a very difficult juggling act to that of trying to make sure that stablecoins are regulated to avoid systemic risk on one hand and try to preserve some greater freedom of exchange that they are capable of fostering. But this is why I am very concerned that we have an environment conducive to having different types of stable coins that can meet different needs. The algorithmic ones, the money market fund ones, the reserve ones that actually are debt-based or deposit-based, if you like. And among those, those that have 100% reserves really have 100% reserves and those that have something else. All of these are different types that warrant different kinds of regulation, it isn't obvious to me that if they're all regulated correctly, that there won't be some that still are able to serve the niche that's looking for pseudonymity. That's not clear. If it turns out that there's no way to avoid macroeconomic risk without wiping out uh, pseudonymity, I'm afraid that uh, if, you know, (laughs) if we're all reading the room out there that pseudonymity's going to go but that is uh, perhaps a trade-off worth accepting i would not like to see that happen but the best way for it not to happen is to allow as much as possible different types of stable coins to exist side by side appropriately regulated and of course to allow further future innovations that may bring us types of stable coins we haven't even seen yet
4: Caitlin, what do you think about this you know cuz you know you've been a a big supporter of cryptocurrencies and the lightweight way in which it operates. How do you feel about the know your customer type of framework that's inevitably gonna work its way into this?
1: Oh, it already is. And by the way, one of the things that has happened in this industry is because there are no banks that issue stable coins, we're one or two layers or more away from the really heavy know your customer regulation. Okay, so let's step back. The way that regulation works There's a lot of regulatory theater. A lot of crypto companies claim to be registered and regulated. Yeah, they may be registered, but they're not really regulated. Paxos just today came out with a blog post on who's really a regulated stablecoin. And I would actually disagree with Paxos. I don't think any of them are because the Fed could shut every one of these down. Okay but they are as close as possible because they're regulated. They are truly regulated by the New York Department of Financial Services as a trust company, and they are backed with just cash and T-bills by law, as opposed to Circle, which is the issuer of USDC, which is a money transmitter just like PayPal. And now we just saw with their disclosures, they've got corporate bonds, they've got commercial paper, they've got a lot of illiquid stuff in there. And then Tether is in a different category, right, in terms of who's got illiquid stuff. Tether really is mostly an offshore vehicle and is definitely used mostly by crypto traders, whereas USDC and the NYDFS issued regulated stable coins are definitely trying to go more mainstream, right? So if I'm the Federal Reserve, which one am I more bothered by? It's the ones that are more mainstream, right? Because they really are competing. And to be honest, it's way too late, I think. To your point, George, I thought it was a really great point. I'm glad Michael brought it up that the offshore ones that are trying to use Tether for pseudonymity there's already $62 billion in their reserves. They may never be redeemed. It's way too late to get those back. They're Euro dollars, they're offshore dollars. The Fed doesn't directly regulate that market, right? And so I think that stays mostly there. It's the onshore mainstream ones, right? You've got now got both Visa and MasterCard working with one of the stablecoin issuers and more to come. That's what's much more of a threat to the mainstream payment systems. And so back to the KYC question. Banks are the ones that actually get regulated on KYC. Trust companies, not much. Money transmitters, almost not at all. Okay, that's the reality. So one other way to to categorize the stablecoin issuers, there's not a single bank issuing one yet. So you don't have any one of them that's been subject to bank level KYC yet. The trust companies definitely have more, not as much as banks. Money transmitters, I happen to know that some of the trust companies and money transmitters involved in stablecoins in the United States have never been examined. So that basically the bank regulators are the police. It's whoever they're banking with. And keep in mind, we've got this bottleneck of just a couple of banks that are responsible for doing their own due diligence on their customers, who are then responsible for doing due diligence on their customers because you've got multiple layers here. Long story short, there really hasn't been that much KYC enforcement. And I think ultimately that's where the rubber's going to hit the road. I suspect all this now is going to result, and I can already see it just in the behavior of the banks. Everybody's doing another compliance review and there's going to be a lot of bank account closures of accounts that have had loose KYC. It's unfortunately, Michael, to your point, It does harm innovation. I've written also about, I'm not sure that the Bank Secrecy Act, if if it were litigated today under the Carpenter case, which is the Verizon cell phone data case, would hold up. The whole Bank Secrecy Act has held up by the Supreme Court under the notion that there's something called the third-party doctrine. Once you give your information to a third party, you don't have a Fourth Amendment privacy interest in that information anymore. But the Verizon cell phone case from the Supreme Court about two years ago now said, no, if you're forced to give that information to a third party, then you don't lose your Fourth Amendment protection against unreasonable search and seizure, where the government can just go to the bank and take the information without having a warrant, which means they need probable cause that you created a crime. So I think it just hasn't been litigated yet, and it's coming. And it's unfortunate that it is as intrusive as it is. And I completely agree with you. That's part of the reason we have accessibility and inclusivity issues with the banking system. But it is the law. Avanti is fully complying with it. And I think once you get these bank level scrutiny of these non-bank one to two layer removed fintechs in the industry, you're going to see a lot of them lose banking services again. Mm.
0: So interesting. I mean, we could spend more time on this, but I want to bring up one other new topic here. And I want to go back to what Randall Carl said, right? Because he was really arguing that stable coins could actually potentially even be more important than a CBDC digital dollar as a way to ease access to dollars around the world. And of course, you know, the implicit goal there is to spread US influence, right? Whether that's via sanctions or whether it's through more dollarized economies or whatever it is. So how do we think about this soft power aspect when it comes to both the regulatory approach, but also just like, let's say that Avid becomes the winner, right? Becomes the one that's really the dominant one. Can somebody in Argentina or Nigeria still use it? And what kinds of regulations and approach would need to be in place for that to be possible?
1: Well, sure. It it is all KYC. And again, it's bank level KYC. Uh, This is not non-bank level KYC. So yes, going through a bank level issuer, all the KYC is going to have to be done at, at issuance. And and if the customer wants to take Avid, the reason why it's named Avid is because it rhymes with have it. You can have it. You can take it, <laughs> take it into your self-custody <laughs> wallet. <laughs> that's what it is. And that's what it's designed to do. And it's not different functionally than a cashier's check. That already exists right now. And the way KYC works for a bank with a cashier's check, your are KYC'd on the issuance and your are kyc on the redemption. And everyone in between that cashier's check by law can be endorsed to a new payee an infinite number of times, but everyone in between is not subject to KYC. And that was one of the big pushbacks that the industry had against the FinCEN proposal right at the end of the Trump administration, because it would have penalized the crypto industry much more than the banking industry itself. Banks don't have to KYC cashier's checks, but stable coins in that proposal would have had to have been KYC'd. So presuming that that stays the same, you know, we're, Avanti's a bank and it's the same level of scrutiny, but it's bank level scrutiny is the most important thing. You will not be able to redeem an Avit unless you pass KYC. So on this topic,
0: George, you know, of stable coins versus a, a CBDC digital dollar, let's call it for the sake of, of just a term to use there. How do you think about the trade-offs there? Like something that really is literally a it's fiat, it's Fed issue, like how do you think about that versus stablecoin and maybe in the context of Carl's comments, but also just your thoughts.
2: I actually think it's uh, a bad mistake to uh, oppose stablecoins to central bank digital dollars because for the most part, the stablecoins, they're wholesale, uh, they're for big players. I don't think they're ever going to become common medium of exchange for everyday folk, partly because they fluctuate in value and that's okay for the big players that doesn't pose a problem with them. That doesn't mean that central bank digital currency is the best or certainly the only option for uh, banking the unbanked. There are all kinds of, uh, shall we say, more mundane types of fintech alternatives that can be encouraged, the most obvious being mobile money. There too, this proposal or this uh, reform that both Caitlin and I favor of opening up Fedmaster accounts to fintech by allowing more fintechs to have banking charters or otherwise, uh, isn't just a way to bring some stable coins out from the shadows. It's a way to encourage all kinds of other fintech innovations that can include uh, mobile money, non-tokenized private fintech-based currencies that ordinary people can use without having to go to a bank. And it's important to recognize that Most people who uh, are non banked or unbanked, they're not unbanked because there's no bank around. So it's foolish to try to have post offices uh, play the role of banks uh, as if that were going to get more people to open up deposits. They don't like banks. That's the biggest problem. They'd rather not deal with them. Now, of course, for some, uh, mobile money isn't the solution. But as we get more and more young people, With cell phones, it becomes the most obvious solution, certainly a more obvious solution than brick and mortar facilities, which I think are pretty much going out of style. So we have stable coins, we've got central bank digital currency, and then we've got a whole wealth of alternative, not so exciting and not perhaps as scary types of fintech, private fintech payments options that the unbanked might find desirable and that we should encourage. Uh, So I don't think that it's a question of whether stablecoins are able to do what central bank digital currency proposes to do. I think other things can and can do it better than the central bank can, than the Fed can.
4: All right. This conversation has wrapped up, I think, much of what Money Reimagined as a project is all about the mobile versus the old brick and mortar banks and the idea of a stable coin and CBDCs and how this fits with crypto and wallets and everything else. This is what this podcast is really designed to do, to sort of like think about what this future looks like and the role of regulators and what it means for us as a society. And you two have done a a fabulous job scratching the surface of it because it's such a huge topic. So looking forward to having you back and doing it uh, some other time. So George Selgin, thank you very much. Caitlin Long. It was a pleasure as always. And Sheila Warren, as always. That was great. We will be back again, same time next week, folks. This is Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. Thank you for having us. Bye-bye.
0: You've been listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. This episode featured Sheila Warren, Michael J. Casey, Caitlin Long, and George Selgin. Our theme song is Shepherd. and this episode was produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau with announcements by Adam B. Levine and additional production support by Eleanor Paul. Have any questions or comments? Send us an email at podcasts at coindesk.com or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening.